Holy Father, um, we ask that you come and be with us um, as you promised to be when we gather. Um, we glorify you for the creations of these women and the community that we have together. God, we lift up Ansley and we praise you for um, who she is and the creation. Um, all of the beauty that you've poured into her Father God. And um, thank you for um, the privilege of being present and to hear what we have to hear today. God, we ask that you come and bless Ansley, not just this morning, but throughout her life, God, that you um, fill her with your spirit as you have and continue to overflow um, into others. And bless her this morning. Give her peace and confidence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. As she said, I'm Ansley. Um, I'm 36. I think. Yep. Um, I have, I'm married. I have two um, kids. I have a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter. Um, we, I've been at Otter Creek, or we've been at Otter Creek since 2018 and visited for like three years before that. Um, and I am speaking today because when we were asked to write on the index card, something we might want to talk about or hear about, or if you had something to offer, I didn't really know anything and I felt bad about not putting anything, so I just put, I could share about these things, not thinking that I would be asked, but, but I, am, I am so happy, I'm so happy to share it, um, but um, I don't really know what this is going to look like. We can sort of make it whatever y'all want. I'm going to fly through my story and then um, I have a plan of what I'll sort of mainly talk about but if y'all want to go a different direction we can do that too um, so big 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 trigger warning disclaimer disclosure um, there is um, talk of rape uh, suicide murder um, mental illness uh, uh, baby death, um, birth abnormalities, just huge trigger warning. So if any of that um, is triggering for you, feel free to leave, feel free to plug your ears or whatever. I don't plan on going into detail on any of that stuff, but it's briefly mentioned. So um, I'm not qualified to speak today. I um, am not a mental health or a sexual assault expert. Um, my parent, this is one sort of disclaimer. Um, I'm going to talk about my story, but I want this to be very clear. My parents did the best that they could given the information they were given at the time, um, the circumstances, and the period of time. This is like the big part of my story is like early 2000s. So <laughs> if you remember back to when you were in church during that time and the culture that sort of was. Um, present at that time, just sort of know that going in. Um, I think that's it. So if anyone would like to excuse themselves, please feel free to do so. No judgment passed at all. Okay. If you wouldn't mind, um, and if you're not comfortable doing this, you don't have to, if everyone would close their eyes, I just would sort of like to get a feel of the audience that I'm talking to. If you have experienced mental illness firsthand, would you please raise your hand? Okay, great. 
um, hands are down, you can open your eyes. I just um, sort of wanted to know the type of audience and the experience that I was um, speaking to. So I'm going to fly through my timeline, and then I'll go back and um, sort of uh, speak about one part in particular. So I was born in 1987. I, um, ex I displayed obsessive-compulsive behavior very early. Um, I, uh, my bed had to be a certain way. All of my books were a certain way. I kept every paper from first grade on and... Anyway, um, I had a friend who I found this out later. She, she was my best friend. She came over to spend the night a lot. She um, told her parents later on that she was like, I really don't want to go over to Ansley's house to spend the night. She won't let me turn over in the bed when I'm sleeping because it messes up the sheets. <laughs> and so, I, anyway, I just did, like, some of that. I had some of that behavior very early on. Um, that is important later. But um, in second grade, I had a class classmate um, pass away from a murder-suicide by his mother. Um, his mother was extremely mentally ill, gunned him down in their house, and shot him in the back, so he was running away from her. And um, so that happened when I was in second grade. At the time, my family didn't think, I mean, they didn't know how it would affect me long term, so they didn't think to put me in therapy or anything like that. It was just sort of something that happened. Um, and I'll say I went to a Church of Christ private Christian school. So um, anyway, it was, uh, it's a relatively large school now, but um, in Montgomery, Alabama. So anyway, so that happened in second grade. In sixth grade, my best friend's mom committed suicide in their shower. Um, that is when sort of a lot of um, obsessive compulsive behavior really sort of took off for me I um, and I can talk about that in detail later but this best friend would um, so her, her mom did that obviously was very ill I would still go over to her house on the weekends um, and she would ask me to take a shower in the shower that her mom committed suicide in and I just like could not do it I think and I'm not any kind of like psychologist or anything but that was probably some sort of coping mechanism for her like if we were comfortable doing that like maybe like we thought it was okay and weren't scared of the situation and anyway that was sort of wild um I could not go over there anymore really after that um I would spend the night at our other friend's house literally like three houses down and we would go over and play and even if the ball that we were playing on the trampoline went over towards that window, I could like not go and get it. This friend ended up transferring schools um, and we lost contact and she got involved in drugs and all the things, but um, that had a significant impact really on the rest of my life. Um, anyway, so um, in seventh grade, this is important later, but um, I started getting pulled up to varsity teams. So um, the girls' sports at the school that I went to ruled. So I played ball year-round. Um, and in seventh grade, I started getting pulled up to some of the varsity teams, which meant I had a lot of older friends. So that's sort of something as a mom I think I'll pay attention to is, like, in the seventh grade, I was hanging out with sophomores and juniors and seniors. and maybe getting into some of the things that they were getting into. And um, so that's sort of something as a mom now 
that I don't know that I'd put a stop to, but I'd be very cautious doing because I was hanging out with like seniors and I was a kid practically. So in the eighth grade, I was raped. Um, I was, um, it was by a guy that I was dating. So I was 14. Um, he was 16. Um, I can go into this later if you want, but um, short story is my parents did not agree with me dating him. I got warnings from all of my friends um, and uh, he raped me. And um, I then became afraid of him and sort of got out of the relationship quickly and, um, but I never told anybody. So I didn't tell anyone until I was a senior in high school. So from the eighth grade, I carried that with me with no one knowing because um, that was my ticket to hell, right? So I, I was raised in purity culture and that was snatched away from me. And so that was my ticket. So I kept that um, silent for years. Um, in the 10th grade, I got diagnosed with migraines, so I was on, until they could get me on a medicine that um, prevented them and stuff, I, I was on some narcotics, which I never got addicted to, thank goodness, but um, that became just another something in the pot of a mess. <laughs> um, in the 12th grade, I had practically a mental breakdown, which that's what I'm going to come back and talk about. Um, so then I went to Lipscomb. So I was freshly medicated, um, five hours away from my family, um, dealing with why am I like this, why is it like this, I shouldn't have to take medication to feel normal, so I'd go off of medication, I was drinking and smoking a lot of pot and doing all the things um, because I was freshly dealing with the fact that I was mentally ill. And so one thing that sort of almost pushed me away from, not the church, because uh, anyway, but coming back, I never thought I would come back to a Church of Christ because I couldn't face the people that I saw at Tin Roof and I was probably passed out on the floor or, you know, those people that I went to college with that who knows how they saw me. Like I was going through it, but they didn't know that. And so I almost like never came back here because I didn't want to face the people that I went to college with. So I went, anyway. Um, so then I went to grad school and um, I lost my grandmother that I was extremely close to. Um, my oldest sister had a, her second child. His name was Bo. Um, he got put at Children's of Alabama when he was about a month old with RSV, which like that happens, right? Um, the nurses on his floor um, kept telling my sister that like something wasn't right. They urged her to push for them to be on the pulmonary floor. So they got moved to the pulmonary floor. He got diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy. Um, it's called SMA. Um, it is fatal. Um, it can be diagnosed in stage one, two, three, or four. Four is like adult diagnosis, which is very rare. Most are stage one, where they get diagnosed in infancy. So basically, everything in your body is essentially a muscle, like your diaphragm's a muscle and all that kind of stuff. And so he lost control 
or didn't have any control of any muscles. And so he got put on hospice at two months old. And I flew home from UTC um, to Montgomery um, when I got the call that it was likely gonna be his last day. So um, I watched my sister grieve and I'm still watching her grieve and that was 10 years ago. Um, and uh, in fact, he would have turned 10 last month. So uh, watching my sister grieve has been difficult. Um, she has since had another child um, and he is fine. They sort of met with a the geneticist. They determined that it was no more risky to have their own than it was to adopt or anything like that. So SMA is a recessive trait. So both parents have to be carriers. One in 40 people are carriers. So if you put a room full of 40 women, a room full of 40 men, and they randomly matched up, like what's the likelihood that the two that have it match up? And then on top of that, there's a one in four chance that they'll have the trait when they have a baby. So anyway, it seems like low chances, but um, that was gonna determine whether I had kids or of my own. So I got tested, I'm a carrier. So my husband got tested, he is not. So his dominant trait will always override my recessive. So we decided to have, have our own. Um, and then my husband's oldest sister had a child pass away at 13 months old from Down syndrome complications. Um, so all of that happened when I was in, um, at, in grad school at UTC. In 2013, I got married. In 2018, I had my five-year-old. In 2021, I had my two-year-old um, at my anatomy scan for my two-year-old. I got told she has a lung mass. Um, it's called a CPAM, congenital pulmonary airway malformation. So um, they're not terribly uncommon, but they're not super common either. Um, basically, one of her lung lobes didn't form right. It formed cystic and pussy and just gross. And so um, they will intervene intrauterine if it gets to a certain size because it can start to do some it can make them have what's called high drops, which um, they start to retain fluid, which puts a lot of pressure on their heart and that kind of thing. Anyway, so it, this thing kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I was going to OB appointments like once a week. We got sent up to Cincinnati um, to their fetal center. They have like one of the best fetal centers in um, the States. And so we got sent up there for a consult. It got like 0.02 away, whatever size they were. I don't know the measurements, but... Um, and it finally stopped growing. They kept saying, we usually don't see growth at this stage. This was like at 26, 27, 28 weeks, but hers kept growing. So they didn't have to, um, they didn't have to intervene, which is great. Um, they always remove them because in five to 8% of cases, if you leave a CPAM, they turn cancerous. So they always remove them. So... I had her, no complications with the delivery or whatever. She had a sedated CT scan at three months old and then at um, four months old, four to five months old, she had an open, I uh, forget what it's called, Thora, I don't know, something. Anyway, so she has this big incision in her back where um, they usually like to do these through a scope, but hers was so large that they could only do it open. So they... Um, opened her up what was only supposed to take 90 minutes took three and a half hours I think it was really adhered to the chest wall so he had to really um, 
I, I guess do a lot of work. Anyway, so she was then in the PICU. She had a chest tube. Um, no one prepares you for that. Like, one thing our, the surgeon asked after he was like, um, is there anything like, you know, we want to make this experience great for all our patients. Is there anything that we could do better? And I was like, I was not prepared to see my child sedated for 36 hours. I, and I said, I don't, and not that anyone can prepare you that for that, like no one can prepare you for that. But I didn't, we didn't know that she was going to be unconscious for like 36 hours. So I think knowing that would have been helpful. Um, anyway, and she would kind of moan in pain, but the chest tube is really painful. And anyway, she got out of the PICU. She, we never, we did a six week follow up and we never have to see pulmonary again. So of all the things that could go wrong, I feel like this one was easy. You know, there's so many other things that can go wrong with pregnancy and babies. I, I don't, anytime a baby is born normal, I do, I'm just in awe. Cause like of all, so much can go wrong. I feel like, um, anyway, so then we're up to present in 2023. So a lot of these traumas, um, didn't happen to me with the exception of maybe one or so. Um, but they certainly had a, a really large, um, effect on me. Um, so, um, I'll sort of talk about, um, when I was in 12th grade, um, sort of how it even came to fruition that I had a um, mental breakdown was we were playing a game. My mom said, I talked to my mom recently about all this. We were playing a game and something came up about, I don't know, something. And she said that I said, and I don't remember this. She said, well, it's better than this hellhole we're living in. And my mom was like, excuse me? <laughs> and I didn't normally talk like that. And I, I guess something was referenced to, um, I don't know, maybe some other, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so she came up to my room later that night and was like, and I was, it was like midnight and I was like sobbing in my bed. Just anyway. And so that's when I told her about being raped and, um, how uh i don't think they knew the extent of my tick like the um obsessive compulsive behavior um so i sort of came clean about that um the only time i ever get um emotional about this story um is when i think about how my mom must have felt like hearing that your daughter you know, i mean Anytime anyone sexually saw that's terrible, but that I carried it with me for so long. And um, my, my dad recently, when we were all talking about this, he said, well, why didn't you tell us sooner? And I just didn't feel, I felt like I was going to be in trouble. And so, um, you know, that sort of changes how I mother now. I... I hope to have a really open line of communication and um, anyway I, I mean there is no handbook on how to parent a child going through well there probably is but um, uh, <laughs> mental illness and trauma and all the things um, so I, I told my parents um, and my mom was immediately like we've got to get her help um, 
And so they were on the phone that night with a friend of a friend, and they found someone that would see me. Um, she didn't see people under 18, but she agreed. Um, so my first um, meeting or appointment with her, she was a psychiatrist, but she was a little different than a lot of psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists um, don't do any counseling. Um, they mainly just hear what your symptoms are, decide what medication you need, and send you on your way. She um, did quite a bit of counseling, too, which was very abnormal. My first session with her was like three hours. Um, and she was a literal godsend. Like, no one else could have sort of coached me through that than her. So I started on medication. Um, lucky for me, medication takes like six to eight weeks to even see if it's working. And then, oh, it's not working, so let's try a different one. So there's another six to eight weeks. And so my whole senior year, this year that I was supposed to, you know, be the best year ever, um, was spent a lot of trial and error. My friends knew something was up, but, I mean, what 17, 18-year-old really can relate? So my friends would come and, like, just sit in our den with, uh, with me while I watched TV. We didn't really talk much. They just were there. Um, you know, I was extremely tired, extremely difficult to get out of bed. My mom would have to wake me up like a few hours before I was supposed to be at school because it took me like an hour to muster up the energy to put my feet on the ground. Um, I felt hopeless, like this was never going to get better, helpless, like nothing's going to help me. No medication, no counseling, no nothing. I just thought it was going to be this way forever, and that's very common in, um, depression and anxiety um, and then I felt a whole lot of nothing so um, which is um, that's a hard place to be where you where you don't have a lot of emotion um, I felt some sadness but it was a lot of hopelessness helplessness um, when is this gonna get better why did this happen um, and it all, so depression sort of changed my personality. So um, if you ever have a friend going through that or anything, um, just know like sometimes they come out the other side and they're not the same friend you had before. And they may never be that way. So prior to this whole breakdown, um, I was pretty, I've always been pretty social, but I was, um, if my friends and I had a conflict, I just gave them the silent treatment. like. We don't have to talk about it. I'm just not going to talk to you for a couple of weeks, and then we'll get back to normal a few weeks later. Um, once this happened, it's like I didn't have the brain space to deal with conflict. So if something happened, I'll be like, that made me mad. Why did you do that? So I was very, like, assertive and confrontational. Um, and... I'm still a little bit that way. Like, I've never gone back to, like, I'm just going to give you the silent treatment. I've always now been very forward and upfront with people, which can certainly take people by surprise. Um, so, it, so I never sort of went back to how I was before and how I dealt with things before. I, it sort of changed me altogether uh, moving forward. So um, this is just a, a funny story. When... Um, I was going through all of this, and it may have been right before I sort of came clean to my, or, you know, like told my parents about all this. Um, our girls' basketball team 
um, I was on the, the varsity, we scrimmaged the JV boys um, almost every day. Um, and there was this JV boy who was guarding me, I thought a little too close. And, you know, I'm like coming to terms with like the rape and my, you know, like consent and how, you know, important all that kind of stuff is. Um, and I took him by the shirt and I ran him up against the wall. And I was like, get your hands off of me. And then I walked out of the gym and went home. And my coach, who had only ever um, coached boys at this point, was like, is this something normal that girls do? <laughs> he was so confused because I just like ran this kid into a wall and told him to get his hands off of me. And then I got my stuff and I left. <laughs> So I was just doing things very out of character. Um, I, yeah, like I said, I was just very, I, I don't know if I just didn't have the, the brain space to really think through things, but I was sort of impulsive and um, I, I don't know. It, it just sort of changed me altogether. But I w while I was in treatment, I was getting treated for this, but it's a waiting game. You have to wait, and then, oh, it doesn't work. Well, let's try something else, and then, you know. So anyway, so then I went to Lipscomb. I, my mom, they sent me off to Lipscomb, and I was doing well at the time, um, like when I first got there, but so then I had to transition um, psychiatrist to someone up here. So I got in with, um, like, I don't know, my parents knew someone up here who knew someone who knew someone, I don't know. She was great. Um, and, but anyway, I was just a little like unhinged at Lipscomb. Um, I was boycotting meds. Um, I was going to therapy. So the psychiatrist that I saw did not do any of the like counseling and that kind of thing. So I went to like three or four different therapists throughout my four years at Lipscomb. And I had the um, the very stereotypical therapy experience and how does that make you feel which is like infuriating <laughs> um, so I never really connected with any therapist and I don't think that um, that is that's not always the case I think you have to find your therapist I think like you just have to find someone you clicked with and I never did I did learn some things like um, I learned some things about myself and about some of the relationships that I had um, so I I did learn a few things and I learned like some coping skills and that kind of thing so it wasn't all for nothing but um, it uh, it's difficult like I think finding the right therapist is like finding the right husband you know it's I think you have to sort of do some some dating or something <laughs> um, so then um, postpartum I was terrified that I was going to have postpartum depression on because of my history. So um, my OB and psychiatrist started me back on my meds three weeks prior to delivery for both girls. Um, and I think that was very helpful. Um, so I came off of them during the majority of my pregnancy, but then I went back on them three weeks prior to delivery. Um, and, uh, I didn't have like postpartum depression, not any more so than I normally have depression. Um, but I had the baby blues so bad, which 
no one told me about. I didn't know there was like this two week period of time where you might be sobbing for hours on end because you think a stranger is going to come in and take your baby. <laughs> like the most irrational <laughs> thoughts. And, but then around the two week mark, I woke up and that was gone. So I really didn't know the like hormonal baby blue situation. Um, I thought, oh no, this is postpartum depression and this is worse than regular depression. So, but luckily it was just the blues and I came out of it fine. Um, so this is, so anxiety and depression can present in a million different ways. So like how it presents for you might be different than how it presents for a friend. So um, my husband has anxiety and it was untreated for a long time and um, his presents totally different than how mine presents. And I think that's a big difference between male and female as well. Um, you just, you could just be irritable and it turns out you may have like untreated anxiety and by untreated, I don't mean you have to go get medicated or anything like that. But, um, anyway, and then there's this whole list of, of uh, subcategories of anxiety. So there's all these different things. Um, anyway, um, and then these are all like risk factors. So one thing that um, I did with, when I first got in with my psychiatrist in high school, um, she had us do a genealogy. And me and my parents were like, what? Like no one in our family has that. Well, so my parents started getting on the phone with their parents and finding out information and turns out <laughs> it runs rampant in um, honestly both sides of my family. So my dad's whole side, they're either literally crazy or they're doctors. So it's one or the other. He has a cousin in a halfway house. He has a, another cousin that's schizophrenic. Um, anyway, so like lots of mental illness on his side. My dad's mother was committed to the Alabama uh, psych hospital at some point now this wasn't really her fault they did um they did a hysterectomy on her at some point and told her they left her ovaries but they didn't they took them and so and didn't ever put her on hormone replacement therapy and so she quite literally went crazy because of that it wasn't really um anyway but so that was my dad's side my mom's side has pretty good amounts of uh, mental illness. Now, you know, like our, my grandmother's mother, we're pretty sure had like psychosis of some sort, but um, they didn't call these things that then. And so we just sort of had to sort of guess. We think she did because of some of the behavior that she displayed and that kind of thing. So that's one thing that I've sort of done with my with my girls is, okay, I know what the, the history of my, on my side is, and so I've tried to find out the history of my husband, husband's side just so we have some sort of, like, framework. Um, and then, of course, dysfunction in the home, substance abuse, bullying, mental, physical, or sexual abuse, any history of brain injury, so your concussions, um, any other TBIs. Um, and anyway, just all the, you know, homelessness, unemployment, discrimination, all of that. Um, and you can have one or multiple of these. These are just some statistics. I'm not going to read them. But the one thing I found interesting was 22% of rape offenses were committed by offenders aged 10 to 19. So um, while I'm terrified to have girls, I 
would I almost would feel terrified to have a boy too because what if they get in this consensual situation underage of course we don't want them to get into that situation right but say they do and it's both parties consent but then the girl decides well I didn't consent and so there's all this um Anyway, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, um, where you get in this underage situation, and then the girl decides, "Well, I shouldn't have done that, and I didn't want—I I didn't want that." But she had consented at the time, so then she's falsely accusing this boy, and like that can ruin someone's life. And so, anyway, there's just so many different directions we could go with this, and um, but we talk a lot about consent in my home. Like, no one touches anyone's privates unless you tell them you know and then these are the circumstances in which people can or should touch you and like bathing and that kind of thing but we um talk lots about consent in my house which is sad that we live in a world that you have to but we do um and then so lots of people should be on your care team and this is sort of something like as a mom I've um sort of making sure that I have for my children I mean Hopefully they don't have any of this stuff that um, I've had, but they might. So having a good primary care, having a psychiatrist or a psychologist in your corner or on hand, or like you know who you'll call if you need that, um, a therapist, counselor, pharmacist, someone at the school that you could that you would feel comfortable, um, like hey my daughter's like struggling. Do you mind like checking in on her every now and then or something like that? Like I had coaches like that, um, then obviously God, and then obviously family. So um, that's sort of it. I had an appointment with my psychiatrist on um, Wednesday, and I, no one should go to him, but anyway, um, he, <laughs> he, just, he just does what I tell him to. I'm like, hey, this is what I think we should do. What do you think? He's like, sounds good, and just writes me Like, no one should go to him. But um, anyway, I mean, I feel it's fine. But I got handed off to him because my, the girl that I was going to when I was at Lipscomb, she decided to go basically part-time, and she was going to do inpatient stuff at Vandy only. So no outpatient stuff or whatever. So she kind of referred me to him, but anyway, he's fine, I guess. But um, I asked him, I said, I'm doing this talk on Sunday. Do you have any resources or recommendations you know, for psychiatrists or whatever? And he was basically like, no. He said, it's the field is saturated. You like, I said, well, is anyone in your office taking new patients? And he said, no. And because I asked him about my husband getting in with him and he was sort of like, yeah, I'll see him. Like wasn't real pleased about it. But I mean, I mean, he wasn't, he was just, he's very nonchalant and really dry and anyway, but he said the field is like really saturated. It's hard to find um, someone and that's discouraging. But um, so I think your best case scenario if you have any of these feelings or thoughts or whatever is to start with your primary care and then they should be able to get you in with someone. Um, and a lot of OBs are pretty um, fine with treating some of this, right Jess? Yeah, I was going to say um, most OBs, especially if it's perinatal oriented, are happy to start a prescription um, and then primary care, like they mm -hmm. should be able to do it. When you start getting into multiple 
like multi-modality mm -hmm. medications or moving into more of like uh, bipolar or schizophrenia, mm -hmm. that's usually when you refer out mm -hmm. um, for those. But like anxiety, depression, literally like yeah. I do that all the time. So um, the um, context of this verse is um, Jesus was continuing his farewell discourse to his disciples. Um, this was set on the last night before his crucifixion. And I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, that speaks uh, very loudly to me for sure. Um, I still struggle today. I, in fact, on Wednesday we added a med that I haven't had to take in 10 years. <laughs> so um, this is sort of something I'll probably have to deal with forever because of my brain chemistry. And that stinks, but I'd rather um, have to remember to take something every day than be in a really um, bad place. Depression is a really um, lonely, um, isolating place to be. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, advice if you have a friend going through this. Um, it's really difficult to be like to, to friend someone that's in the in the thick of it um, because a lot of times they can't tell you what's wrong. They don't know what's wrong, just something's wrong. Um, so I think just being present, just letting them know you're here, um, Forcing them out to go do things is good. Um, a lot of times we um, don't go do the things that we like doing because it takes a lot of energy and you don't feel like being social and all that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, that is it. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments? I know that was really heavy. I um, did not know this was the going out talk <laughs> so I'm terribly sorry um but uh yeah so Merry Christmas <laughs> yeah thank you for sharing your story yeah thank you yeah yeah I I think that I appreciated um you also discussing now how um this changes your perspective as a mother mm -hmm. um you know just the things that you are watching for and paying attention for um, and knowing that you are working so hard to take care of yourself for your for your yeah. children, because it's it's not just about you anymore, and that's you're, you're working so hard. Um, and so I I admire that. Thank you. Make up to that. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you want her to turn the recording off? Okay. Kind of geared off of the like second grade event that mm -hmm. happened, and then also thinking about the context of Covenant mm -hmm. this year yes. and everything, and talking to young kids uh -huh. about these difficult things. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts going through it, like of how it was handled for you, of how you might in the future handle it, like with your girls? I, I mean, it wasn't handled, honestly. Like, yeah. it was something that happened. Um, the little boy was no longer our classmate, and... Um, there's a little bit of, so the little boy is the cousin of my, I didn't have a brother, but he was my brother. Like, anyway, it was his cousin. And um, I actually go over to my friend's house to play, and, you know, it's his cousin that, an aunt that this situation happened with. 
his uncle moved in with them for a while and um, we would be over there playing and he would be squalling in the bedroom and I will never unhear that which like I should have never gone over there and played you know what I mean like I should not have you know so it it wasn't handled and that's really no fault I don't fault my parents at all for that like no one knew the and it didn't play it didn't play nearly as big of a role in my life as the suicide of my other friend did uh, of her mom but it, it just wasn't handled so anything more than that is positive <laughs> I mean I think like now you know is it Daystar that's providing all that counseling for all of those kids and families I I think they've handled it as best you probably could. But I think any time there's, it, even if it's a classmate that this happened to, like maybe like just even going and talking with, having your child talk to someone that isn't you, only to find out they're good. Like they didn't need anything. Like I will do that a hundred times over rather than just assume that, that everything's fine. Now, when my friend's mom committed suicide, they had a counselor come to our school and like offer, he talked to us and he offered, uh, you know, to talk with us individually. He was like 60, he was, uh, he was like not it. I mean, he like no, no one in sixth grade is gonna go up to this guy and talk to him about, anyway, he just didn't come across relatable and all that kind of stuff and so it was great that they offered that but like not him like anybody else but him but anyway so they were starting to move in the right direction yes yes and they will tell you yes um my dad you know he, he asked why didn't you come to us and I just I I didn't uh, my mom and I are very close now, extremely close, but I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable. Well, for one thing, with the rape, they told me this is a bad idea. And so they told me, and I did it anyway, so it's like my fault, right? Well, no, but that's at the time how I felt. Like they told me this is a bad idea, we don't want you hanging out with him, and I went and did it anyway, and that's what happened. And so I didn't feel like I could come to them because they told me so. And so, sure, I mean, there are lots of things that they probably feel like they could do differently, and, um, and they've vocalized that now. And even now, talking with my mom, she said, I wish we had, um, I wish we had paid more attention to the rape. Like, they were so focused on my mental um, state at the time that they that we really didn't, like, delve into what this means, why, you know, all the things. And so now she has regrets about not, I think, having me counseled more through that, which I've, I've that's a lot of what I did in therapy in college is I, I sort of went into that piece. But... Um, I felt like because they told me this is a bad idea we don't want you hanging out with him that's why I felt like I couldn't come to them because they told me so like I did what they told me not to and that's what happened so 
I don't honestly I don't know the right answer of like how do you how do you mother some someone who you're telling them this is a bad idea and they go and do it anyway how do you make them comfortable to tell you that they did it I don't I don't know <laughs> I does anyone know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. And, I mean, we were, I'm not an affectionate person now, and I think that's a little bit um, how I was brought up. Like, I, I felt loved, I was in a safe home, all the things. I, I, I love my parents and would, I could not imagine being parented by anyone else, and they are my heroes and all the things. Um, but yeah, so like now I hug my children, even though I, I like, that's not my love language. I mean, not that I don't want to hug them, but you know, like that, and my oldest daughter is very affectionate. Like so much, I'm like, hey, pump the brakes with your friend. Like she doesn't want to hold your hand. Um, so anyway, so I think, yeah, just do, and like I said, my parents did the best they could given the time, the like time we were in and give them the, cir- given the circumstances and so, I, yeah, I mean, I am pa- I'm parenting my kids now, and I hope that, like, whenever they do something wrong or they do what I said not to, I, you know, sort of reaffirm, like, you're not going to be in, you're, you're not in trouble. Can you tell me what you did or anyway? And so I, I guess I just try to, like, have a conversation about things rather than, which they're not really at an age where they're doing anything like wild, too, too wild. But um, anyway, I don't know. I mean, it's just a journey. So. This sounds like maybe a fear of punishment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my goodness, that was such a gift to share your heart. You are so strong, mm-hmm. and what a testament that through all of this, you're still here. You know. <laughs> And God was with you and through that, and you still choose God, and it's so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Welcome. Um, can you guys uh, tell me and pray over Ainsley? Lord, we are so grateful for her sweet spirit. God, we pray that you will continue to use her to, um, to show you to um, other people who are going through hard things, God. We pray blessings over her, and we are so grateful for her bravery and for her faithfulness. In Jesus' name.